Welcome to the Maranatha Baptist Church Podcast. It is our prayer that this sermon from God's Word will be a blessing to you and will grow your love for Jesus Christ. We would encourage you to use it only as a supplement to your regular intake of God's Word in your local church. If you need help connecting with a local church, please reach out to us on our website, mbcgrimes.org. Well, the prayer of that last song really captures the theme of Acts chapter 19 and the theme of our service this morning. The reality is that the gospel prevails over idolatry. That's what sin is at its very root. It's worship of something other than God. That's what Adam's sin in the garden was, in other terms, way back at the beginning. When Adam chose to do what Satan wanted, to do what he wanted instead of doing what God wanted. It's idolatry. It's worship of something other than God. And so as believers, the gospel has called us to a new kind of life. We've let that old life pass away where we lived for ourselves, and now we live for the one who died for us and rose again. This is the call of the gospel. Because the call of the gospel is one that attacks idolatry, there are really just two responses. A person can either turn away from their idols and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, or a person can fight and resist, protect their idols and resist what God is trying to do. And that's the kind of response we see in Acts chapter 19 as these literal idol worshipers resist the truth of the gospel and continue to worship their idols. So for us, as we think about Acts chapter 19, the theme is this, that as the gospel prevails over idolatry, we must fortify our devotion to God. The idea is continue getting rid of idols and be more and more devoted to the Lord. And that's really the contrast we're going to see in this text. We see those who fight for their idols, and then we see the Apostle Paul and the other disciples of Jesus Christ with him, who who just continue showing their devotion to God, doing what God had called them to do, Proclaiming the gospel, following his leading, standing up courageously in the face of the scary mob. And so it's this contrast that helps us see as believers, we we are to remain devoted to the Lord in the face of idolatry, even though we know that as the gospel goes forward, there will be those who resist As I mentioned at the beginning, we we come to Acts chapter 19 in the context of a great victory in Ephesus. Remember, Paul had been preaching the gospel there for almost two years, and word had spread through all of Asia, and many people were trusting in Christ. In fact, you could look back at the text there in Acts chapter 19 and verses 17 through 20, and you see the section where these people who'd been following after sorcery, they purchased books and lived for that. That's what they were worshiping. They trusted in the name of Christ, and they threw their books into a pile and, and burned them, the value being 50,000 pieces of silver. And there's that word silver, which interestingly comes up in our story today in the very next section. And Luke's summary in verse 20 is, is so rich there. He says, so the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. 
It was strong and it prevailed over idolatry. That's exactly what the message of the gospel does. It prevails over idolatry. But even as it's doing that, some will resist. And so we come to verse 21 through 41, and we see what this resistance looks like. As we walk through this, we want to see not only that what this resistance looks like, but we want to consider how we learn from that, how we as believers instead remain devoted to the Lord, resist idolatry and remain devoted to the Lord. So in the first two verses, we're going to see our first point today, how, how it is that we fortify our devotion to the Lord. And we're going to notice there Paul's devotion to God's will. He devoted himself to the Lord and to the message of the gospel. You'll see as we study these verses that, that Paul's consideration of what to do next was based on God's leading. It wasn't based on the success. Notice what happens there in verse 21. When these things were accomplished, so this, this great repentance, when these things were accomplished, Paul purposed in the Spirit when he passed through Macedonia and Achaia to go to Jerusalem, saying, after I've been there, I must also see Rome. So Paul's kind of planning out his journey, and he's going to go through two regions, Macedonia and Achaia, and then he's going to head back to Jerusalem, and then from there he wants to go all the way to Rome. Now there's a phrase there that's kind of unique. It says, he purposed in his spirit. Uh, We don't know exactly what that means for sure. Uh, The word spirit could be referring to Paul's just inner spirit, but he tends not to talk that way. Often when Paul's making decisions and thinking about what the Lord wants, the word spirit does refer to the Holy Spirit. And so that's why the New King James, for instance, actually gives that a capital S there uh, because their interpretation is that this is referring to the Holy Spirit. And I think that's probably likely. It says that he purposed in the Spirit. That word purpose means to like determine or establish. And so I, I think we could imagine Paul sort of sensing, what, Lord, what do you want me to do? Where are we headed next? What's the next step here? And as he's seeking the Lord's will, as he's devoted to what God wants, God makes it clear, uh, you need to press on, Paul. You need to keep going. And so as Paul wrestles through this, he's finally determined, I think the Spirit's leading me to return to some of these churches I've planted in Macedonia and Achaia, back to Jerusalem, and then keep spreading the gospel. So Rome sort of represented the the ends of the earth from Acts chapter 1-8, because once the gospel got to Rome, it was the center point of the Roman Empire, and from there it could just explode in all directions. And so this is sort of God's plan and Paul's plan, and really the rest of the book of Acts is the unfolding of Paul's journey to Rome. That's what, we'll, that's what Paul will be doing as we end the book of Acts when we get there in a few weeks. And so Paul is devoted to God and to the spread of the gospel. Now, just to help you imagine uh, the scene here, we've got a little map uh, to point out these regions. So I'm going to turn around and ignore you for just a little bit. The city of Ephesus is right here, and you can kind of see the outline of some of Greece. And then here's Italy, the boot, right? Here's Rome way over here. So Paul is in Ephesus, and he's saying he's actually going to go back up 
through Macedonia. There you've got Thessalonica and Berea. You remember his visit to those places and the churches he planted there. And probably come back down to Achaia where Corinth is. And then from there sail all the way back down to Jerusalem which is down here. And then after Jerusalem he's making plans to go back over to Rome. Okay, and we'll find out in the book of Acts. He does a lot of sailing to get there and, and uh, some shipwrecks along the way and so forth. So lots of adventures for the Apostle Paul in the days ahead. This, is, this next map is a picture of what he sends Timothy and Erastus to do in verse 22. Notice verse 22. He sent into Macedonia two of those who were ministering to him, Timothy and Erastus, but he himself stayed in Asia. So he sends them north through Macedonia, down into Achaia, and they'll eventually be reunited. So there you go. Now you kind of imagine where they are and what's going on. But Paul is devoted to God and the gospel. And remember, this is on the heels of a great victory, right? Hundreds of people are repenting and turning to Christ and burning their sorcery books. You know, the, the riot that we just read about, that hasn't happened yet. So Paul's not running from some bad thing here. If this was about building his own name and his reputation, this would actually be the time to stay in Ephesus. Right? Hundreds have repented and they've burned their books and the church is just exploding. But Paul is not about building his own name. He's about doing what the Lord has called him to do. And so he purposes in his spirit, hey, now's the time to move on. I'll keep going. I'm going to visit the churches I've planted, go back to Jerusalem, and then we're on to Rome. The gospel must go forward, right? He's devoted. It's not about his name. It's about the Lord's work. Many times in life and in our culture, you know this, it, it quickly becomes about our name, building our brands, building our reputation. Even in ministry, even in church life, it can become about that. I could probably mention to you the, the names of a few famous church leaders, preachers, and you'd recognize their names. Because as a church grows and gains thousands of people in its following, it's difficult for a, a church leader to avoid the, the, the pride that comes with that and the desire for their name to grow. And so we have church leaders. I was doing a little research. We have church leaders out there worth $100 million and more because they've built their tribe, their brand, their name in their ministry. But isn't that just serving another kind of idolatry? Isn't that just serving our own desires? The gospel calls us to live a different way. And the Apostle Paul wrote about this time and time again. In fact, it was while he was in Ephesus that he wrote to the Corinthian church. And in 2 Corinthians, he calls them to live a different way, right? Because Jesus died for them, now the call is to live for the one who died for them and rose again. Why? Because they're new creations. So as believers, we ought to be devoted to God and his gospel. As we see in Paul's life here, it's not about success or failure, it's about faithfulness. It's about following the leading of God in our lives. Just please Jesus. Now, when we talk about following the Spirit's leading, we do need to be careful because there's a pitfall that can be common in Christianity, and that's even to use God's leading as an excuse to get what we want. Maybe you've experienced that before. 
God gets blamed for a whole lot in the church. Well, I'm pretty sure God's leading me to do this, and so this is what I'm going to do. And when, when we share that with others, what happens is the person who might have been planning to offer some counsel say, well, I, let me push back a little bit. Now, all of a sudden, if they push back a little bit, they're disagreeing with God, right? It's easy to toss that phrase around. Well, God's leading me to do this, and God wants me to do this, and then others want to push back, but it's like, well, if I push back, suddenly I'm disagreeing with God here. But in this day and age, the way the Lord leads us is through His Word. This is how He speaks to us, is through the Scriptures. He leads not through feelings and intuitions. We study the Scriptures to gain God's view of the world to align our lives with His priorities. And then we seek counsel, not telling others this is God, what God wants me to do, but asking others, what do you see in my life? How do you think the Lord might be leading in my life? And our brothers and sisters in Christ come along and give counsel and help. A great question to ask if you're seeking the Lord's will is to say, what passage of Scripture has God used in my life to direct my thinking on this? And if you don't have a Scripture that God's used in your heart to help to guide you, then find one. Search the Scriptures. This is how God leads His people. And when the Scriptures do lead in our lives, we must be a people who follow, who submit who are devoted to doing God's work and doing God's will. At the end of the day, it's all about pleasing Jesus. We see this in Paul's life, and we're going to see how that continues to play out in this text. And so first, we remain devoted to God and His gospel. But number two today, as we think about fortifying our devotion to God, we need to expect resistance as the gospel attacks idolatry. Expect resistance. It's what the gospel does. It strikes at people's very hearts, the things that they worship and love. And so as the gospel goes forward, and even as the gospel infiltrates our own hearts, we need to expect resistance. People don't like to give up their loves, their idolatry. We see this resistance as it pops up in verse 23. We read the text already, and so I'll summarize, I'll talk through what happens here. There's a commotion about the way, a civil disturbance, we could call this. And the way is a reference to Christians, those who follow Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life, right? So they're following Jesus, and there's this commotion. They don't like uh, the disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, why not? Well, Demetrius explains it well for us here. A certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith, he had been making uh, idols of Diana. And if you have a kid nearby who's using the coloring sheets, there's actually a a picture on their coloring sheets that has a, a good representation of what these little idols looked like. And so maybe, kids, you can help the adults out and show them what that coloring... That's an actual photograph from this... No, I'm kidding. That's not an actual photograph. But the, the, the sketch there is kind of a nice representation. There are these little idols, and they, they were plated in silver. And so Demetrius was one of these silver workers who was making these little idols. They're called shrines in the text. And Luke points out for us at the end of verse 24, it brought no small profit to the craftsmen. That means they made a lot of money off of this, selling these idols. Verse 25 
He calls these other workers together who have a similar occupation, and he reminds them, men, you know, I don't have to tell you this, we make our profit by this. No small profit, mind you, right? This is how we make our money. But then in verse 26, he begins to explain the problem. Not only in Ephesus, but all through Asia, people are turning away from idolatry and trusting in the one true God. This is actually a really cool verse out of Demetrius' mouth about the, the power of the gospel. People everywhere are turning from their idols and trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. He claims that, verse 26, Paul is saying that things made with hands are not God's. Now, we read a statement like that, and it's like, uh, yeah. <laughs> but in this day and age, that was an abrasive statement to their culture, because everything they worshipped was made with hands. It was all idolatry. And so for this message to come in about one true God who cannot be seen and send His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Messiah, God in the flesh, that that's the God, something not made with hands. Whoa, this is new information. So verse 27, Demetrius is concerned their trade is falling into disrepute, which is interesting. He's not claiming the monetary side of things. He's saying that we'll be disrespected. We'll no longer be valued as tradesmen in the way we make our silver idols. And they might even be criticized because if people believe that these idols are fake, then we become charlatans, right? We become selling these fake things to the public here. And so our trade is falling into disrepute. But not only that, verse 27, he says, the temple of the great goddess Diana is falling into disrepute. Her magnificence will be destroyed. The temple of Diana, according to uh, some of the books I was reading, was one of the great wonders of the ancient world. Pillars that were 60 feet tall and the inner structure was larger than a football field. Uh, it's just the, the largest structure in the Greek world at that time. It's just massive. And so worship of Diana, known in her, her Greek name was actually Artemis. Some of your Bible translations may say Artemis instead of Diana. That's, that was her Greek name, Diana being the Roman name, was the goddess of fertility. And thousands and thousands of people offered worship to Artemis to Diana. And it's obvious they made no small profit off of this. So Demetrius lists these, oh, you know, cultural and issues of respect. But if we read into his statements back in verses 24 and 25, we we see a third idol kind of behind the scenes. It's not just about Artemis. It's not just about the respect of their trade. But I think Demetrius is also concerned about his money. He's worshiping his money. They brought no small profits, and he's going to lose his prosperity from the trade, verse 25. So, the gospel has struck the hearts of Demetrius and his craftsmen, the things that they love, the things that they're worshiping, Ephesus and its accolades for Artemis, their money and all the profits they were making off of these little idols, their respect in the culture there. And so he calls the other men to resist. Expect this kind of resistance as the gospel attacks idolatry. It's what the gospel does. It tears down the other things that we might worship and calls us to worship 
God alone. And so we should expect this kind of resistance. One summer, my job was to paint houses. And uh, so I was working around the exterior of houses, up on ladders and all of this. And the largest house I painted that summer, it was just massive, um, had, had all sorts of peaks in it. In fact, I was curious in including this illustration, I was curious how many peaks it had. So I used Google Maps satellite view to zoom in on the house. And it's a different color now. So they apparently have painted it again. But at any rate, um, I wanted to count how many peaks there were. I counted 11 peaks uh, around the exterior of this house. And these are, you know, sort of second or third story peaks. Uh, we're talking extension ladder, you know, size peaks. And, and so I, I remember uh, getting ready to paint that house. And the first time I ventured up into one of these peaks, I, I discovered a, a beehive up there or some kind of stinging bug. I don't know if it was bees or hornets or wasps or what it was. I didn't stay too close to, to figure it out. But anyway, there was some sort of active hive up there. And so I raced it down the ladder, and oh boy, this is going to be trouble. So I decided, you know, I should probably check the other peaks and see how much I'm dealing with here. Just about every peak, again, I don't remember the exact number, but I remember it being just about every peak, had an active hive way up in that peak. Okay, so my next step was to go to the hardware store and buy a basket full of bee spray, right? Or the, the, the hornet killer and all that stuff, right? So I, I literally bought, a, a, you know, two arm loads worth of cans of this stuff. And uh, I wish you could have seen it. I wish somebody was recording, right? So just imagine 11 times, right? Or maybe it was 10 times. I don't know how many beehives there were. But anyway, there I am, right? With a can of spray in one hand, you know, shimmying up the ladder, getting within the minimum distance of the spray, Right? Spraying the hive, watching the bees start to come out, and then racing down the ladder, right? (laughs) Move the ladder, do it again, right? I got through that whole thing, all 10 hives, not getting stung once. Can you believe it? I got a little faster as I went, you know, about the fourth or fifth rung up. I just jump off the ladder at that point and kind of run and watch, you know, and see what happened. I went through all the cans of spray that I bought, and uh, we successfully got rid of the hives, and I could move forward painting the house, But it was helpful to know before I got up there with the paint and everything else that there was going to be some resistance to uh, painting up in those peaks, right? You disturb a nest and what do the bees do? They come and they attack. It's probably wasps or something like that. They're They're the evil ones. Anyway, so... I knew it was coming, and so it helped. I could go get the spray. I could be prepared. I was ready to race down the ladder when they came swarming and ended up escaping the adventure unharmed, right? It helps to know in advance that when we attack something that people love, there's going to be resistance, and this is what the gospel does. The gospel strikes to the heart. It touches us at where, what we love and what we worship. You see, God, as the creator of the universe, is holy and righteous. He does not allow sin in his kingdom. And believe me, that's a good thing. But mankind sinned and rebelled against God all the way back in the garden and over and over and over and over and over again. All of us have sinned and rebelled against God. We've made ourselves, therefore, unworthy of God's righteous kingdom. 
Actually, it's our memory verse this week, our church memory verse, Romans 5, 18 and 19, that explains it beautifully. There, the Apostle Paul says this, Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. You see, it was by our sin that we fall under God's just judgment and condemnation. That sin is a worship choice. Just like Adam in the garden, we choose to do what we want instead of what God wants. We choose to serve Satan instead of serving God. It's a worship choice. But there's good news as well. Romans 5, 18 and 19 continues like this. Even so, through one man's righteous act, a different man, the man Christ Jesus, Through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience, Adam, death, or excuse me, by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. Jesus obeyed his Father, died on the cross, and rose again, offering salvation to any who would trust in him. And when we believe in Jesus, our sins are washed away, we're set at peace with God again, and we're made worshipers of God again. We're restored to right worship. This is what the gospel does. Jesus explained this to the woman at the well in John chapter 4. You remember that scene where he says to her, the hour is coming and now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship Him. This is what the gospel does. It calls worshipers back to worship their Creator, to worship Him rightly. And so because of that, it attacks idolatry and we need to expect that. We need to be ready for resistance as we spread the gospel. This calls us to watch out for idols in our own hearts, to those things that we worship that are not God. Sometimes we even come to Christ in a sense of idolatry, where we, we trust in Jesus because he'll make my life better. If I believe in Jesus, I'll receive a a network of friends in the church and things will go better for me. Well, that can be a form of idolatry, can't it? Now, those things aren't wrong, they're true. (laughs) We receive the family of God and so on and so forth, but we can do it because we're actually just worshiping ourselves. We serve so that we can be seen. We, we get upset when God calls us to sacrifice for the good of others. And all these things begin to reveal the idolatry that can be present in our own hearts. And so it helps to know that it's there. The gospel attacks idolatry. And this should help us as we share the gospel with others as well. When we witness in the world to know that it's a worship war, we should expect pushback. We're calling people to love Jesus more than money. We're asking people to love Jesus more than pleasure. We're encouraging people to love Jesus more than their job, their family, their respect. It's a war in many ways. In Luke chapter 21, Jesus had told his disciples to expect resistance. There he encouraged them to remember that there will come a time when they will be persecuted. They will be judged. They'll even be brought before kings and governors with the opportunity to testify, to bear witness of the name of Christ. And they would hate them because they hated Jesus. 
This is about worship. It's about following Jesus. And so it helps us to expect resistance because the gospel attacks idolatry. Those are the first two ways that we remember to fortify our own devotion to God. Number three this morning, we can face chaotic rage with courage and wisdom. Sometimes it's tempting to respond in kind, and as other people sort of lose their minds over their idols, it's tempting to do the same. But we notice in the believers here that they respond with courage and wisdom. Notice what happens in the riot here. We read it, but the city in verse 28 hears this. They're full of wrath and they begin this cry, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. It's actually just three words in the Greek and they just begin shouting this out. It's just this this love of their, their goddess and their fame and so forth. And they begin worshiping her out loud. Verse 29, the city is filled with confusion and the the crowd rushes into their theater. And again, historians look back and estimate that that theater could likely hold 24 or 25,000 people. It's a massive structure. And they run in there and they're just crying out, great is Diana of the Ephesians. And so there's confusion on the way. They grab a couple disciples, Gaius and Aristarchus. Those who've been traveling with Paul, imagine being one of them and this riotous mob just grabs you on the way and they're just crying out, great is Diana of the Ephesians. Oh boy, what's going to happen here? Paul, verse 30, wants to go in. The disciples hold him back and Luke doesn't give us a whole lot of information about this. I mean, I think we know enough about Paul's personality to know that he's probably sensing compassion for the people and love for Gaius and Aristarchus and just wants to get into the thick of it and preach the gospel and calm the crowd down. And I mean, you know, we know Paul's personality. And in fact, I think the um, city leaders were told in verse 31, excuse me, the officials of Asia, I think they know his personality too, because as soon as they hear about the riot, they send messengers to Paul. Paul, don't go in there. (laughs) They know Paul's so devoted to preaching the gospel and the Lord's work. Maybe Paul's even thinking back to the words of Christ. You'll stand before kings and governors and crowds of people, and I'll give you the words to say, and you'll represent my name. And Paul's like, okay, here's my opportunity. The gathering of thousands in the theater, I'm going to preach to them. And Paul's ready to face it with courage. At the same time, his disciples, we'll, we'll call it wisdom here. The, the other followers and the, the, the leaders of Asia, you know, reach out and say, Paul, maybe not the wisest time. The crowd doesn't seem to be too reasonable here. And so they hold him back. And Luke doesn't comment who was right, who was wrong. We don't know for sure. It's not the point of the text. But we do see two Christ-like virtues here. We see courage and we see wisdom in the face of chaos and rage. Paul and the other followers are thinking with clear heads and with courage and with sound minds, with self-control. It's very different from what the mob is doing. And I think we see evidence of the importance of the body of Christ and the virtues of Christ in the church as they face this chaotic rage. So Paul doesn't end up going in and we read in verse 31 the, the, uh, the officials help plead with him, and indeed, he stays out of 
the mess. We can face even chaotic rage with courage and wisdom. We actually don't have to use our imaginations to think of mobs and chaos like this. We could just look back in our news feed. It doesn't have, you don't have to go that far to see evidence, pictures and videos of this kind of chaos and rage. But where does that come from? It comes when something that someone is worshiping is under attack. Something we love to our very core, something we will do anything to defend. That's at the roots of this kind of rage and chaos. You've probably seen pictures of mobs like this, riots like this, and oftentimes on the other end of the mob, you see the law enforcement marching in with courage and wisdom. Right? They have maybe the, the, the plastic shields that guard them from you know, whatever the crowd is throwing. They've got the, the helmets and the, maybe the bulletproof vests, you know, whatever. They're decked out. There's wisdom at play right there. <laughs> But there's also courage as they press forward and press against the mob and calm the crowds down and disperse the chaos and rage. As believers in Jesus, we can demonstrate that same kind of courage and wisdom at the face of chaos and rage in the world. In fact, that's exactly what Jesus encouraged his disciples to do in Luke chapter 21, which I already mentioned. He said, do not fear in those scenarios. I will give you the words to say, they might kill you, but they cannot harm you, Jesus says to them. Not even one of the hairs on your head will be harmed. At the same time, he tells them they they might die in the persecution, but they cannot be harmed. What does he mean by that? Their eternity, their true life is secure in Christ. And so as believers in Jesus, we can face this kind of persecution and chaos with courage and wisdom. We need not fear. We trust the Lord. Sin is always irrational. It never makes sense to oppose God, ever. That's what sin is. Therefore, sin is always irrational. It's always chaotic. It doesn't make sense. And yet, we turn back to it over and over and over again. Why? To preserve what we're worshiping. Anger reveals our idolatry. This is true in our own hearts, even as Christians. Think back to those times that you have been angry, or even in uh, softer terms, if you want to say frustrated. It's anger. But think back to those times that you were angry. Was it connected to something you were worshiping? It always is. It's connected to the things that we love. Now, there is such a thing as righteous anger. We see that in the Lord Jesus Christ, right? For instance, when he cleansed the temple, righteous anger. But think about it. Even that was connected to worship, wasn't it? Who was Jesus worshiping? The Father. He comes into the temple and cleanses it and makes it clear, this is my Father's house. See, anger is always connected to our worship. It reveals what we're worshiping. And sadly, the vast majority of the time, it reveals that we're not worshiping God. The wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And so, if you find yourself angry, God's giving you an opportunity to see an idol in your heart. 
pause and reflect, what am I so upset about? We get angry because we don't like something that's happened or didn't happen. We disagree with the turn of events. The stronger the emotion, the stronger our worship of that idol. So maybe a project takes longer than we wanted, and so we get frustrated. When I do that, am I worshiping God in that moment? No. I'm worshiping myself, my schedule, my timing, my plans. Or let's say somebody loans out an item to somebody else, and then they receive that item back, but it's damaged and broken, and so they get upset. Are they worshiping God in that moment? No. He's worshiping his possessions. He's worshiping himself. Maybe a parent gives instructions to their child, but then explodes when the child disobeys again. Is the parent worshiping God in that moment? No, the parent is worshiping authority, control, themselves. This kind of thing can happen over and over again. Anger reveals our worship, but actually it's not just anger. These kinds of strong emotions tend to reveal. It doesn't have to be just anger. But when we understand how this works, we can face chaotic rage with courage and wisdom. When we're tempted to respond in kind, to respond with anger right back at them, we can remember, oh, wait a second. That's just worship of something else. How do I respond in a way that shows what the Spirit is like? How do I respond in a way that shows this person what Jesus is like? How do I bring the gospel to them? One of the fruits of the Spirit is self-control. That we can have a sound mind in the midst of those scenarios when others are responding in chaos and rage. So these three ways help us as we seek to fortify our devotion to God, to devote ourselves to Him and His gospel, to expect resistance, even to face chaos and anger with courage and wisdom. But that leads us to the final point, and we remember that the battle is the Lord's. Here in the final point, it becomes clear that they are fighting not about their own reputation, Would you go ahead and forward it for me? The clicker's not working. Thanks. The battle is the Lord's. They're no longer fighting about Paul or about this man named Alexander. You're going to see his name. It becomes clear that the battle is actually about God. It's about worship. Notice how this unfolds. We see it starting in verse 32. They're crying out to one another. They're fighting about all these things. The assembly is confused. They don't even know why they've come together. I mean, this is pure chaos. All they know is they're shouting, great is Diana of the Ephesians. They don't know why, who they're fighting against or what. Verse 33, this man named Alexander is put forward. Some of the Jews who were present in the mob think, well, maybe Alexander, he's one of our best speakers. You know, we don't know why they put him forward, but maybe Alexander can help to calm the crowds down. So they put Alexander forward, but pretty soon they find out he's a Jew, which means that he believes in one true God which means he's not for Artemis. And so they shove him off the stage. They're not going to listen to him. And they continue on then for two hours in verse 34. Great, it's Diana of the Ephesians. See, this isn't even about Paul or Alexander. It's not even about Judaism or Christianity. This is about the one true God. Finally, in verse 35... 
The city clerk quiets the crowd. The, the city clerk is different than our clerks today. The city clerk this is actually the title for the, the highest position in the city. So mayor, maybe something like that. This is the, the guy in charge of the city, okay? He stands up, and they, they have to respect him at this point. They've been crying for two hours. Hopefully they've lost their voices at this point. So, so he stands up, and he begins talking to them. And I want you to notice about his speech. This, this isn't something that we should copy as Christians, but it's interesting to me that he appeals to their worship. It's actually he appeals to the things that they love and value in order to get them to calm down. It's very interesting. Notice what happens. He reminds them in verse 35, don't be alarmed. Of course, Ephesus is still the great city of Diana, right? These, these men can't change that, right? So what's he appealing to? He's appealing to their hearts, their loves. Don't worry, it's still a great city. Diana is still a great goddess, he references at the end of verse 35 this image which fell down from Zeus. It's just an interesting side note. Historians think there may have been some meteor at some point that fell and hit in Ephesus. And kind of as they often do with these kinds of religious things, you know, somebody thought, that meteor looks like Artemis, right? And so all of a sudden now Ephesus is the, the city that the, the gods have chosen to, to worship Diana. And so that's kind of how that came together in history. And so he actually references it here, which is really interesting. This is the city the gods chose. Her image fell from heaven, and so we worship Diana here. He says in verse 36, these things cannot be denied. There's facts, right? He's speaking to their hearts, their loves. Don't worry. Your idols are safe. Verse 37, you've brought these men here. They're not robbers of the temple. They're not blasphemers of your goddess. So they, they aren't speaking against Diana directly. They're just saying there's one true God. Verse 38, if you have a case, bring it to the courts. Now, this is a very Roman thing to say. Rome was all about getting rid of chaos, putting down riots, keeping the peace. It was a very structured and organized civilization. And so the mayor is smart here. He's thinking, you know what, if this riot gets out of control and we don't have a good reason for it, we're in trouble with Rome. This isn't just a city problem, but this is an empire problem. And so he actually explains that to them. He says, look, if, there, if there, something has really gone wrong, bring your charges against one another. Verse 38. Verse 39. If you have another inquiry, it can be determined by the lawful assembly. Take them to court, basically, is what he's saying. A riot is not the way to solve this. Verse 40, we're in danger of being called into question for today's uproar, being no reason that we can give account for this disorderly gathering. And that disorderly gathering was a common term in that day for the very thing the Roman government was trying to put down. Get rid of the riots, get rid of the chaos. So what's he appealing to again? He's appealing to their loves. Self-preservation, the comfort of the Roman Empire, the greatness of the testimony of Ephesus. He's saying, look guys, all of this is at risk. If we keep this riot going, we'll get in trouble with Rome. Ephesus will no longer be respected. It's all, your lives might even be in danger. So settle down. And he appeals to their idolatry. And so finally the crowd settles down. And verse 41, they all kind of exit. That would be an interesting, I just like imagining these things. Can you imagine ed- exiting the theater, you know? 
What are people saying to one another? Like, wow, I'm not really sure what happened. That was interesting, you know? And just go, so they head back to work, you know, for the rest of the day. <laughs> like, why, why did we gather again? You know, just, I don't know. Strange things occur here. Why? Because this is bigger than just Paul, Alexander, Judaism, Christianity. This is about the one true God versus evil and idolatry. This is big, and the battle is the Lord's. We know this because we see how God provides even through this here. God sovereignly uses even the Roman Empire to calm the situation down. Gaius and Aristarchus are released without any harm to them. And God, I think, behind the scenes is orchestrating all of this. It reminds us of a sovereign God. The battle is the Lord. It's about the Lord and he remains in control. This helps us as we continue serving the Lord and sharing the gospel and meeting resistance and things that are out of our control. We can continue to trust God's good plan and trust his sovereignty. Commentator Kent Hughes shared a story about a vacation he was on, which kind of captured my attention. He said uh, they were on a vacation in Cape Cod, and as they were driving to the beach, Kent realized that he had locked his keys in their cottage. They went to the real estate office, the place where they had rented the cottage, and they discovered that the one they were staying in was the only cottage that they didn't have duplicate keys for, (laughs) so there was no way back into the cottage. Worse, in the midst of all of that turmoil, it had dawned on him that when driving there, he had left his wallet on top of the family station wagon. And so the wallet had fallen off somewhere along the way, commuting back and forth from the cottage to the real estate office and so forth. And so they searched and searched and searched, and even after getting back into the cottage, searched and searched, and they could not find the wallet anywhere. Needless to say, vacation was not going as planned. However, in the midst of all of this, he mentions he and his wife talking and choosing to trust the Lord. Choosing that in the midst of all of that chaos, he was going to trust God's plan. There was even a sense of peace and rest despite the circumstance of the missing wallet. Why? Because trusting God brings peace. Remembering that he's in control sets our hearts at ease. Kent goes on to explain that uh, once he got back from vacation, uh, he called the church office and the secretary told him that a man who lived 10 miles from where they were staying had found the wallet, called the church office, and had offered to ship it back to him. (laughs) So God had provided, right? What good would the worry do? What good would the the turmoil do? There's a sovereign God at work behind the scenes in everything. We remember that the battle is the Lord. We can trust His sovereignty. This is helpful to us as we face the difficulties of sharing the gospel, the, the resistance that may come up against us. We know the end of the story. He wins, right? It's done. It's decided. And so as we press on and there's there's resistance, we don't have to take it personally. Remember that this is what happens as the gospel goes forward, as idols are cast down, some resist, and God is still sovereign. 
The question that this text leaves us with is, how am I responding? How am I responding to the gospel's work, the gospel going forward? Am I fortifying my own devotion to God? Or as the gospel presses in on my life, do I respond in anger or irrational behavior, trying to protect and preserve the things I'm worshiping instead of God? Or is my response more like the others in Ephesus that we read about a couple months ago in chapter 19, verses 17 through 20, where they hear about the Lord Jesus Christ, they believe in His name, and they confess their deeds bring their books and burn them in an act of worship to the one true God, the Savior who had saved them. Where are you at today? Are you ready to demonstrate your powerful repentance in response to the name of Jesus, the only true God, the only way of salvation? Are you ready to bring your books and burn them in honor to His name, casting down every other idol Or like the other Ephesians, is there resistance in your heart, seeking to preserve and protect those other things you worship, yourself, your your money, your respect, resisting God's work in your life? I encourage you, as the gospel prevails over idolatry, fortify your devotion to God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for this text, which reminds us that this life is indeed a war. It is a war for worship. You have sent your gospel out as a call to those captured in the way of Satan, worshiping the prince of the power of the air. There may be even some here today who are still captives to do his will. May the truth of the gospel, even as it's been preached today, penetrate the hearts of every listener. May we recognize that the gospel calls us not only to trust in Jesus, but to recognize that He alone deserves our worship. Father, help us even now to cast down our idols and to return to worshiping Jesus alone. Fortify our devotion to You. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more resources, visit our website, mbcgrimes.org. May the word of Christ dwell in you richly, and to God be the glory.